Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. Sunny skies, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, we'll bring you America Amplified, life, community, and COVID-19. I'll be joined by Mina Kim of KQED in San Francisco. Public radio stations across the country are teaming up to present important dialogue regarding the coronavirus pandemic. You'll hear a rebroadcast of the inaugural program in this series. And that's going to decimate any of the learning gains that students have had over the last year. And for those students who need the most infrastructure, they need the most scaffolding, they need the most support, they need the most encouragement, they are not going to have it. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, the latest information as it relates to the coronavirus here in Georgia. As of 11 a.m. today, there are 29,045 confirmed COVID-19 cases. The number of deaths statewide is reported to be 1,192. And there are 5,429 hospitalized. Now, that's all according to the Georgia Department of Public Health, again, as of 11 a.m. today. Also today, free COVID-19 testing is available at a DeKalb County church. It will take place from 3 to 7 p.m. at the House of Hope Atlanta in Decatur. And also, to be tested, you must register in advance by phone or at georgia.gov. This is Closer Look. This is Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. We are presenting something a little different on today's broadcast. Recently, the America Amplified Life, Community, and COVID-19 series launched. It involves public radio stations across the country teaming up to facilitate important conversations regarding the coronavirus pandemic. The series began last month as WABE partnered with KQED in San Francisco. We examine how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting the remote learning gap for the nation's K-12 students and also how it impacts the work of essential workers. We also took calls, but a reminder, this is a rebroadcast, so phone lines are not open. Welcome to America Amplified, Life, Community, and COVID-19. I'm Mina Kim, news correspondent and host of Forum on Fridays on KQED in San Francisco. And I'm Rose Scott, host of Closer Look from WABE right here in Atlanta. Each week, America Amplified will rotate hosts between two cities. Why? Well, to bring you a wide range of voices from across the country about how the coronavirus pandemic is changing how we all live. School closures across the nation have really turned a spotlight on inequities. And even though California, where I am, has had no shortage of natural disasters that shut down schools, like wildfires and mudslides, it hasn't meant districts and families were ready to make the transition to remote learning. We'll hear how households across the country are adapting to online learning and how their surrounding environments could impact the students' educational outcomes beyond the pandemic. Joining us now is Lisa Kelly, a sixth grade teacher at Life Academy in Oakland, California. Welcome, Lisa Kelly. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for being here. And tell us about your students and what their families are facing at Life Academy. Yes, I teach in East Oakland in the Fruitvale neighborhood of Oakland, California. My students, I teach sixth grade English and English language development. My students are primarily English language learners, primarily Spanish speaking at home, though not all. They're mostly Latino from Mexico, El Salvador, um, Honduras, um, and Guatemala. And many, most of them are low income, qualify for free and reduced lunch. 
And what have you learned about their situations? I'm imagining that you have an even better sense of the inequities and the challenges that your students are facing because you've had to engage with them more intimately to get them the learning materials they need for remote learning. Absolutely. This pandemic is just exacerbating all of the inequalities, all of the oppression that people of color and low-income people have to face in this country. And that's exemplified by almost none of my students had computers at home, which we work to get them computers. So they do have computers now, but still many of them don't have internet or don't have reliable internet. And most of my families that I serve, they've lost their jobs. So paying the internet bill is going to be one of the first thing that they stop doing when they can't afford it anymore. And how has the school tried to address some of these things? Well, we've tried to get hotspots, um, Wi-Fi hotspots to as many families as we could. It's been a difficult process. Comcast has been saying that they have um, programs for people who need internet, but they're having a really hard time getting to families and installing the internet that people need. So what we've done that's in our control is that we've gotten computers to every kid and we're doing a lot of fundraising, trying to get money to families because that's what they need at the moment What they've lost their jobs and they're um, just struggling to survive. And there's also so food distribution happening at my school so uh-huh. families can come and get food twice a week. What have you found has been the most effective way to communicate with them, especially when they didn't have internet access? And are you continuing to use that communication medium? Yeah, it's definitely phone calls and text messages is the primary way. So we are creating work and the kids are trying to engage on Google Classroom on the internet for those who can. But almost every kid who's not engaging, it's because of financial crisis. And so when a kid is not engaging in the work, that's information for us teachers that we need to reach out, make sure they're okay, make sure they're healthy and see what other barriers are they're facing and try to address those. Lisa, this is Rose Scott in Atlanta. Clearly, an online education environment can't always replace those social interaction with with fellow students and educators. So how are you and your fellow teachers, are you able to create any type of social learning lessons in a virtual setting? That's a great question because what kids miss the most is their friends. Like every time we talk to a kid, they're just like, I miss my friends. I'm just bored. I'm lonely. Um, So we do. We have advisory, which is kind of like a homeroom period, which is just when it was regular school, it was 30 minutes a day of social emotional time. And so now we're trying to do just fun, like group hangouts with games, online games and um, stuff like that to have the kids have the experience of getting to getting to hang out with each other. When we have our office hours or our class time, the kids really just look forward to that to get to talk to each other and like use the Zoom private chat function (laughs) to talk to each other. So trying to build that into the quote unquote lessons of the day is really just trying to build and continue because even today some kids turn in stories and they were writing in their stories like I've forgotten what my friends sound like you know we're all in trauma right now and so they're just trying to survive. Speaking of trauma how are you all having that conversation about this pandemic what questions do they have for you all? The kids really mostly I teach sixth graders so mostly they ask over and over again when is school coming back what like even if they've heard it before they still want to hear it's like it's next year when I'm a seventh grader like tell me again like they just because it gives them a sense of order, a sense of knowing a little bit of what's coming in the future. So they they ask that question a lot. Um, They ask a lot about what is the virus? Where did it come from? Um, You know, how do I not get sick? And they always want to talk about what they hear on the news, like, oh, we have to wear masks now. Do we have to? Do we not? Should I drink bleach? Should I not? Like, whatever they hear on the news, they want to ask about. I'd like to bring Julie Lithcott-Hames into the conversation now. She's former dean of freshmen and undergraduate advising at Stanford. Her books include Real American, a Memoir, and How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kids for Success. Julie Lithcott-Hames, thanks for joining us. Mina, always great to hear your voice. And Rose, nice to meet you across these airwaves. Thank you. You know, Julie, Lisa's experience feels emblematic of broader inequalities that school closures from coronavirus concerns have really laid bare. And what do you think we need to learn from this? Law and policymakers need to learn from this. 
Yeah, I want to answer that. The first thing I want to say, though, is, Lisa, my heart goes out to you and to every single teacher. We've got healthcare workers on the front line, but boy, did we just get really clear from Lisa, if we weren't already, that they are very much on the front lines doing their very best, a key resource for kids and families in their communities. But to the broader question, Mina, yes, now is the unambiguous moment teaching us that we have an untenable digital divide in this country. And this is a country that has the resources to close that digital divide once and for all. This is one of the most, if not right now, the most pressing social justice issues of our time. And how about on the other side of this in terms of homes where they run the gamut, right? You have parents who are home and schools doing a lot of online classes and trying to provide, you know, daily, all day education for their kids. But there are many parents who are working and the school is providing very little and the responsibility is falling on them. What can parents do to help with the homeschooling of their kids? And what kind of support do they need besides also this these funds to close the homework gap, as you say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm speaking to you from Palo Alto, California, which is a fairly wealthy community. And I've got parents here in my community who are just fit to be tied over the fact that their kids AP class is not going to be graded uh, because what will that do to their GPA? And I'm just shaking my head going, folks, folks, could we please have some perspective here? Because that is, you know, the epitome of a first world problem right now. Let's focus on families who do not have the devices, who do not have the Wi-Fi. And he here are some solutions specifically for those families, because I want those families to feel seen and heard amid all of this. If you are lacking devices, um, check out an organization in Oakland called techexchange.org. They have details on how to get refurbished computers sold at a very low cost. You can even request refurbished computers for free. They also have details on home internet options, so you can get your Comcast, your ATT, or your Sonic free for 60 to 90 days, very low cost after that. Oakland'sTechExchange.org, I believe they're serving the nation. Also, local schools are providing solutions. Miami-Dade was just in the news. They're using school buses to deliver not just meals to kids, but also laptops and the school buses are Wi-Fi hotspots. Local libraries are, are Wi-Fi hotspots. If you can drive or get to your outside your local library in the parking lot, use their Wi-Fi as a hotspot so you can access your content. And finally, free content. The best resource I know is from Common Sense Media. They have aggregated through a new URL, a new site called WideOpenSchool.org. WideOpenSchool.org, they've aggregated the best free content from Scholastic, Sesame Street, PBS, Khan Academy, and others. It's free. It's a great interface. If your school isn't providing content, check out Wide Open School. That's great information. Thank you so much for that. But now we want to bring in Kamal Bob. He's an educator here in Atlanta at Georgia Tech, and he's also the global lead of diversity strategy and research at Google. Thanks for taking the time, Kamal. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You know, there's always been this conversation about how we measure racial education equality. And, you know, typically one of those metrics is an achievement gap. And we know that exists. That's not new. But now comes this pandemic. And, Kamal, people are saying, well, now the online learning will widen this education gap that already exists. And I just want to get your thoughts on that. Well, I think uh, all of the things that we've heard thus far from both Julie and Lisa are evidence of how that will take place. I think that the, the, the gap that is now coming to light that we're uh, so concerned about, I think for those who haven't been paying attention are the things that have, uh, those are the pre-existing conditions that will make uh, this kind of educational platform disproportionate in the outcome. So the things that Julie was just mentioning about, uh, and Lisa as well, about the, the gaps here in Atlanta, for example, uh, in Atlanta public schools, the median household income for black students is $24,000 a year. For white students in the very same school district, it's $167,000 per year. That was before COVID. So what that means then is that the shock to this system that this uh, pandemic has created, it's clearly going to hemorrhage all of the resources that poor people have already had and therefore their ability to resource their students, to resource their education, to provide access, to be even 
have the time to go out and search the resources that uh, Julie was just alluding to is going to be constrained. So for very many reasons, I think that it's going to exacerbate these differences that we've already seen. Let's go to Grant. Grant, what's your question or comment? I'm a educator. Uh, I teach elementary school in uh, Kansas City metropolitan area, and I work in, with a really high poverty population. And I think uh, kind of what we've been talking about is is this digital divide and, and the opportunity gap is going to be widening because you have an entire district of students that do not have the resources that their peers a few miles away from them have. You know, we have students in our district that are not receiving the same quality of education that they were whenever the school buildings were open. And it's it's taking time to get resources and mobilize things to get them the high-quality education that they deserve. And um, for teachers, it's proposing a, a huge challenge because we've had to completely relearn everything that we, you know, we've, we've had to change all of our resources. We've had to change our strategies to reach those kids. And it's there's growing pains associated with that. And, and for the populations that are most vulnerable, um, like, you know, students that come from low-income households or areas that are, you know, historically discriminated against, uh, like the inner cities, they don't have time to lose. And, and those growing pains are going to affect them the most. All right, Grant, thanks so much for your comment there, Grant, from Kansas City. And uh, Kamal, Bob, the point that Grant was making about the digital divide, I find it so interesting because here in the San Francisco Bay Area, especially when schools initially closed, there was a struggle over whether to do online instruction when they knew not every student could access it. Is there a right answer to that? Because they didn't want to exacerbate inequities by providing digital learning to some. Well, that's an interesting question. That's uh, kind of an issue of moral balance. So on one hand, you're saying, well, we should constrain everybody to adhere with the constraints of the least of us. And certainly, if you're not one of the least of us, that doesn't make sense for the parents of students who have the wherewithal to keep pushing ahead. They would say, well, our kids should just wait. So if you just consider what it means to be one of those parents, that's an unethical outcome for your own child. But I do understand the larger uh, discourse. However, it has been answered before, so we shouldn't assume that this particular crisis makes that question somehow unique. In instances where prior to the crisis, those students and communities who had the wherewithal to run full speed ahead with resources that other students didn't have, they did so without compunction. So to assume that now in this crisis we shouldn't do that, A, it's not going to happen regardless of what we think, but then the other is that we should not really be concerned about constraining the top but making sure that we can accelerate the bottom. If you're just joining us, you're listening to America Amplified Live Community and COVID-19. I'm Rose Scott from WABE here in Atlanta. And I'm Mina Kim with KQED in San Francisco. Let's go to Belinda, who's calling from Columbia, Maryland. Oh, hi. Um, I've got a, I've got uh, just a little statement to make. I, I have a child with an IEP, and he's high-functioning autistic. And we're basically what you would consider uh, middle America. And I'm finding that that there's a huge difference. If you cannot afford the services, like outside of school during this pandemic, your child will suffer. And, and I get it that you're saying to love your child, but I'm trying to grow my child. Linda, thank you so much for that. Come on, Bob, I want to get you in on this because she brings up a very good point for a lot of parents who may have kids with special needs who also are parents who are working as well. And that's a whole nother set of circumstances for so many parents. And my question, come on, Bob, is that when these kids eventually do return, whether it's kids who need special needs or those kids who were struggling before the pandemic, we don't want to sound doom and gloom here, but what are the, the, the circumstances that could happen if these kids aren't able, with the, the summer slide and all that, they aren't able to catch up by the time we return in September? Well, I think at the outset, I just need to be graceful and appreciate the pain that the, your question uh, raised in the futility of trying to figure out what to do with a child with limited resources, with limited time, and the constraints that that places on a parent. I think thinking about the pain involved in that as a person is a lot to contend with. But that said, I also want to raise the point of suffering. I don't think that we should shy away from what's gonna happen here. The suffering is gonna be real. I think that for those students who have special needs, the suffering and who are also uh, under-resourced and poor and the confluence of that and being a student of color 
all of those forces, are, they, they make them the most vulnerable and the most forgettable in the way that this American system currently works. So I don't think that we should put any euphemism on top of that. So one is that that is going to yield a lot of suffering. The way that we talked about, uh, that you just raised, Rose, about the summer slide, that's just in eight weeks. Now mm -hmm. we're going into a summer slide that may be seven or eight months, and that's going to decimate any of the learning gains that students have had over the last year. And for those students who need the most infrastructure, they need the most scaffolding, they need the most support, they need the most encouragement, they are not going to have it. And let me just layer this other point on top of it before we get to the, <laughs> to the more positive side of it, is that when we think about folks who are middle to upper middle class, people who work at Georgia Tech and at Google, people like me who can claim that they can just stay home and have everything delivered to them, those people who are making the deliveries in Atlanta are almost exclusively black people. And they are the parents of those kids whose annual household incomes are $24,000 a year. So those people have kids too. And they're not there. However, my child is with me. She doesn't have an IEP. And we, she's here listening to this very uh, conversation right now. So her life is being enriched to some extent because of the comforts that we can offer to her, the dialogue that we can have with her at home that she doesn't get at school. And all of those things are going to amplify this summer slide that you referred to. So I think what's going to happen when people return to the previous question, we are going to have to rethink the way that this system works. Because up until this point, at least 11 states have had public school teachers on strike. Chicago, the major cities, Chicago, L.A., Oakland, uh, where you all are on the West Coast, they've all had teacher strikes in the last several months. So the, the system that we're going to be asking to help students catch up was already besieged with the inability to keep students on pace in the pre-COVID environment. So now I think when we're talking about trillion dollar bailouts to the country, to this other point that was raised earlier, we are going to have to figure out a much more national crisis response to the educational infrastructure that we currently exist under. And Kamau Bob, he is the Global Lead of Diversity Strategy and Research at Google. We've also got Julie Lithgott-Hames with us. We're talking about education inequities that have been amplified by the coronavirus pandemic. Our conversation continues in just a moment. Natasha Wimberly, an English teacher at Early County High School in Southeast Georgia, will join us. Stay with us for that. You're listening to America Amplified, Life, Community, and COVID-19. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Welcome back. This is America Amplified Life, Community, and COVID-19. I'm Mina Kim with KQED in San Francisco. And I'm Rose Scott with WABE in Atlanta. You know, Mina, here in Georgia, there are 159 counties. 124 are considered rural populations. Now, the plight of rural communities doesn't differ much from urban areas, but there are some economic issues confronting these small towns and cities, and there's also a digital connectivity problem. And who better to tell us about that than Natasha Wembley? She's an English teacher at Early County High School in southwest Georgia. How far south is it? Well, it's right near the Georgia-Alabama line. Natasha, thanks so much for coming in and joining us. We really appreciate it. Yes, I'm with you. How long have you been an educator? I've been in education for 14 years. And what subjects do you teach? I teach English language arts at the high school. Let me ask you this. Before the pandemic, I imagine connectivity was a barrier for your students. Yes, connectivity has always been a barrier for my students, but um, I have Chromebooks, so the students have access to Chromebooks at school. There's not a, I mean, it's one-one at school, but they cannot take these Chromebooks home. But at school, they have internet access and the connectivity is better. It's just in the rural communities. I mean, not all areas have internet capabilities. 
And Natasha, you know, I've been curious about what new skills you're being called upon to use to make remote learning successful. I mean, are you trying to teach your students from afar while at the same time, uh, you know, I understand you have your sons back home with you? Oh, yes, yes. I am trying to teach my students from afar because I, like I said, I was fortunate enough to have, um, we're part of the Google project and I'm, I have Chromebooks. I've had Chromebooks, so my students are um, used to using Google Classroom. So all I had to do was just put some assignments on Google Classroom. And if they had internet, they could complete those assignments. But I also gave alternate assignments for those who did not have internet access, whereas they were could just journal each day. So. And do you feel like the journaling is a significant disadvantage to the kids with the Chromebooks? I do not because with the journaling assignment, I mean, this is a this is going to be a part of history, and that's what I tell them that it could be handwritten, it could be typed, it could be photographs, it could be little doodlings. Just record events day by day, at least four days out of the week, and these are things, different activities that they're doing. They, they it could just be their feelings, nothing that's just very strenuous for for them. It could be a and video that- journal. Have you been able to to hear from all your students? You, you're staying on track with all of them, or have any of them dropped off? No, a lot of them have dropped off significantly mm. because they don't have the internet capabilities. So mm. that's why I have given an optional assignment to make things fair and equal. So, Natasha, that being the case, then, as the as the educator here, how are you able then to, I guess, fairly assess them for maybe moving on to the next grade or for a final grade? Because um, grades will be based on a philosophy to help, not hurt. Mm -hmm. So what they do will be beneficial to them. So that's the philosophy that we're going by. We're trying to help them, not hurt them. So anything that they do will improve their average from the third nine weeks. It will not hurt them. And thank you to Kamal Bob, Julie Lithcott Hames, and Natasha Wimberly. I'm Mina Kim from KQED in San Francisco. And I'm Rose Scott from WABE in Atlanta. This is America Amplified Life, Community, and COVID 19. Welcome back. This is America Amplified Life, Community, and COVID 19. I'm Mina Kim with KQED in San Francisco. And I'm Rose Scott with WABE in Atlanta. Whitney Buford Morris, who works in the city of Atlanta's Solid Waste Department. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Whitney, what's a typical work day for you? What's that like? Typically, I come in. I'm given my assignment. I, um, As of right now, I am uh, driving the garbage trucks, the normal garbage trucks that you see coming through your neighborhood once a week. Mm -hmm. So I'm given my assignment and I go to my area and I service the citizens, be it wrinkling, garbage, or yard trimming. So while the new norm for us, we all have a new norm, but not for you, it's business as usual. And I want to ask you, how does that potentially expose you to contaminated objects or people? How are you protecting yourself? Well, just the nature of this job in general, I'm kind of out there in the elements. You know, I am picking up garbage and recycling. I'm picking up the things that people discard out of their household. So, you know, I I have my PPE, which is my my gloves. I have glasses, safety glasses. And of course, I have a mask now, which, you know, that's kind of something new. But uh, that's typically how I carry out my work now and just making sure that I I don't have too much contact with any other debris that I'm I'm picking up for the areas that I'm servicing. Whitney, did you ever consider maybe not going to work? Uh, Did you have concerns about your safety, your family? Did they say, well, maybe Uh, if you have some days coming to you, maybe you should take them? of, Of course, I did have some concerns. I have three young children at the house. So, of course, you know, I would hate to inadvertently bring something home to them while I'm out going to work in order to support them. But um, as far as not coming to work for me, you know, I understand what it is that I'm doing. I understand that specifically as it pertains to a, a pandemic, you know, this, the, the refuse, it, it has to get up. So I understood that my job more so, you know, I'm, I'm going to be out there. I'm going to be on the front line the entire time. 
So I, I made peace with that the moment everything kind of went south. Mm, a lot of people Whitney, thank you for that. I'm just curious, this is Mina in San Francisco. Do you feel like Hello. you've gotten the information that you've needed from your employer or the equipment that you need to be safe on the job? Yeah, I, I actually do. I um, uh, The gloves that we wear is their heavy duty gloves. And what we pick up now, they've uh, let the citizens know you know, what they can do that can make it safer for us. So I actually feel my job's done a pretty good job of making sure that the citizens are aware of making sure that your garbage is properly containerized and it's bagged so that I can make the least amount of contact with it. It sounds like that's an important way that residents can help you feel safe and stay safe on the job. Yes, Yes, that is very important. One thing I I always wonder, too, is just how your life has changed since you were deemed an essential worker during this pandemic, like for you personally. The biggest change, of course, is the children being out of school. So really, when it comes to my household, my husband is also an essential worker. So work schedules haven't changed. The only thing that's really changed is the kids are out of school. So whereas school and after school activities would kind of wear them out by the time I get home, you know, when I get home, they're they're still ready. They're still geared and ready to go. But um, for the most part, the the routine in my house has really remained the same since we're both essential workers. Mm. Whitney Buford Morris, who works in the city of Atlanta's Solid Waste Department, Whitney, hang with us because now I want to bring into the conversation Keith Parker. He's CEO for Goodwill of North Georgia. Keith, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good afternoon, Rose. We're having a little bit of technical difficulty, so I hope you all can hear me clearly. Yeah, so far we got you. Keith, for many of the nation's essential workers, this pandemic has put millions of low-wage earners in the spotlight, not all of them. And that brings us to a conversation I know that's very important to you when it comes to income inequality. And now this the conversation is turning to, well, let's talk about the plight of essential workers and income inequality. Sure. You know, it's interesting. Over my career, I've had the great honor of serving as an assistant city manager who was responsible for public safety. So I had the frontline police officers, firefighters, folks like that. Now working with Goodwill of North Georgia, I have a number of people who are working in federal buildings, such as the CDC. And and so they're out there every day making it happen. And one of my prior jobs was as the CEO of multiple uh, transit authorities, including here in Atlanta. And all these folks, one of the great vernacular changes, I love to hear police officers, sanitation workers, firefighters, as well as the folks who are cleaning buildings, be referred to as essential workers because they've always been essential uh, Mm -hmm. to me. But one of the really complex conversations that's going on right now is how do you compensate a person in a meaningful way for putting, in some respects, their lives on the line? Uh, You know, some employers have done it with what they call hero pay. Uh, Some have done it with added time off and that sort of thing. But ultimately, most of our folks who face the most difficulty when it comes to income inequality, they simply can't afford to take the time off. So they need to be there. As the uh, very eloquent Whitney just said, that their children at home, and when they've got kids and responsibilities, some have to weigh this very difficult equation of do I go to work and face the risk, sometimes a maybe one to 5% risk of getting sick, Mm-hmm. or not go to work and face the almost certain risk of financial difficulty if you don't go. So it is a very difficult conundrum that many of our frontline people find themselves in every day now. And we want to hear from those who are on the front line. Proud to take this next call because it's my hometown of St. Louis. Let's go to Joe. Hi. Uh, yeah, so I am representing a group called the Who Are We Movement, and we are paired up with coronastrike.us and Cooperation Jackson, which is uh, active right now in Mississippi. We are pushing for an essential worker strike due to the fact that the federal government has yet to do any sort of mandated hazard pay or relief for essential workers, including PPE and uh, mandatory uh, protections that the general public isn't even aware of um, that we deserve in order to protect them. And. Keith, Parker, I'd love to get your reaction to Joe. I mean, you were just talking about wages, right? Do you feel like this is a moment where there is more strength among low-wage workers, especially essential workers, to be able to make the case that they deserve more pay? 
You know, it's such a balancing act because many of the companies who hire uh, frontline employees aren't making a very much profit right now, if any profit whatsoever. Uh, some have uh, not taking in uh, hardly any revenue, uh, but still keeping many of their, their folks, as many of, the, as many of them as they can, keeping them as whole as they can. So it's quite individual in terms of each employer. You know, some of the government, uh, local governments are facing really difficult budgetary challenges even before COVID-19 hit. And many of the retailers that you find out there were barely making it. And then when this hit and suddenly very few customers were coming in and the online retail wasn't generating enough revenue, if these employers were to dramatically increase wages or pay folks full-time wages without uh, having that revenue, it, it will bring them to financial ruin. So it's a really complex, almost one-on-one -on -one conversation each employer has to have with their employees. It's a, uh, is that what I wish I had you, one good blanket answer, but there isn't one. Is that what you're facing as CEO for Goodwill of North Georgia, Keith? Because I know a lot of your operations, I believe, had to close, but there are some parts of it that are still open. Are you finding that as an employer, you are doing that balancing act? Yes, and we're one of the fortunate ones. I think, uh, you know, I pray every day and, and give thanks every day of the situation that we're in, that uh, we, even though we had to shut down over a month ago like everyone else, and the vast majority of our revenues come directly from our retail stores, we have not laid off anybody. We've kept every one of our employees, all the full-timers as full-timers, all the part-timers as part-timers. We've kept all the management staff employed. We have asked some folks to take uh, uh, some level of pay cut or reduction in hours, but we were meticulous in making sure that no one lost their health care, that we wanted that we get two goals when we started this, and it was to keep everybody who was full-time at full-time and to keep everyone's health care at the same level that it was when this started uh, as we go through it. And, and I can, you know, knocking on wood here, thankfully say we've been able to do that. But as I talk to other business leaders and CEOs, we're one of the very, very few. I would guesstimate we're in the you know, that 5% number who has not had to lay off significant numbers of uh, folks. Because it is a very tough situation. Do you lay off now with the hopes of saving dollars and reopening stronger? Or do you try to fight it out and keep your employees as best as you can uh, for as long as you can? And that's the tact we've taken and, uh, and hope that that's the one that ultimately works well for us. And then pray for all those other people who had to uh, make other very tough decisions. I understand that Millie, our, uh, our farm worker advocate, is on with us right now. And, and Millie, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you tell you. us how the coronavirus crisis is affecting workers in the field? Oh, wow. There's so much to share. Thank you for inviting. Uh, Alianza Nacional de Campesinas is representing uh, 15 different organizations in 11 different states uh, around the, this country. And uh, what I can tell you is this. There's so much... We know we're essential workers. We know uh, we, we've always knew this, uh, but in terms of what is being seen right now, uh, we are called essential workers. Finally, we, we become visible. If we don't uh, work in the fields, in the farms or orchards or nurseries and dairies across the United States, then people don't have food uh, in the markets or in their tables. And so, what we have been working all along throughout my history and history of many others that have been activists is around the economic exploitation of workers, the exposure to pesticides, the harsh and dangerous working conditions of, of many, and then the workplace violence and sexual harassment, even threats of deportation if you complained about anything. I'm not saying that all companies are doing this, but many are. And this uh, uh, puts a lot more jeopardize and more danger to workers uh, right now, especially women, that COVID is happening, COVID-19. Yes, I mean, Millie, I feel like some of the things that you're describing are things, sadly, that were happening already and have been exacerbated by this. And I'm also wondering yes. about just the new challenges that COVID creates, right? It requires people to social distance when they're the fuels. It requires people to have hand washing stations and, and, and hand sanitizers and clean restrooms. And do you feel like farm workers are getting that? 
Some companies are providing that, which we're very, very thankful for that. Many are not getting that. Uh, and, and I'm talking about not having even restrooms at times or uh, one restroom for a male and then a female. But uh, we're talking about 45 to 50 workers or even more during the day. And uh, the restrooms are not clean throughout the week. And then uh, they only have the hand washing facilities at the beginning of the week and then throughout the week uh, if the crew leader remembers uh, to bring water and or clean the restroom, then it's happening. But what does that create? Uh, that workers, uh, even though they're told you have to wash your hands, you have to keep them clean. Uh, excuse me, if they're not providing all the gear that also they need, it's uh, counterproductive and, and workers are being exposed. Working many more times, shoulder to shoulder, or at least one to two feet away from each other. That's not that's not the social distancing that we're asking that's being we're being asked to 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 be uh, in order to protect ourselves. So it's it's hard. It's very, very hard for workers right now. I want to bring in Keith Parker back into the conversation because the question I had for you, based on you heard what Millie said, employees, workers will remember how they were treated during this pandemic. And could that lead to a shortage, a workforce shortage in some industries? And if so, how do you see that? Oh, without a doubt, you know, when we sat down and we've worked on these, worked the numbers, reworked them and reworked them again, and looking at what was the most efficient way for us to come out of this, uh, of this crisis, when we crunched the numbers, it actually would have been cheaper for us to lay people off or furlough people or cut their health care. But we made, we added the uh, additional variable of loyalty and people feeling good about coming to work for Goodwill of North Georgia. And that's how we came up with the final decision for as long as we can to keep people whole. Uh, because if we don't, the financial devastation that many of our employees would face, including losing their cars, losing their homes, uh, and all sorts of other things going wrong for them, we know a stressed out employee is not the best employee. We know the person who feels more comfortable at home and feels that, the, that, that their employer has their back, if you will, that that's an employee who's likely to stay on and help us through more difficult times that we're certainly going to face in the future. So I think it is a part of the calculus that all leaders need to, to weigh. Though again, I don't cast aspersions at people who had to make dip, different decisions, mm -hmm. but I certainly do think the workforce at Goodwill of North Georgia will remember how we've treated them through this crisis and will be thankful for it for many years to come. We're hearing the experiences of essential workers with Keith Parker, Millie Trevino of Lideras Campesinas, and with you, our listeners, post your comments on Twitter at Amplify2020. And I'd like to bring Debbie Berkowitz into the conversation. She's the Worker Safety and Health Program Director at the National Employment Law Center in D.C. and former Senior Policy Advisor for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA. Welcome, Debbie Berkowitz. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So the CDC, it has issued workplace guidance during this pandemic, but what rights do you know, folks that Millie Trevino works with have, farm workers have at this time? So you're right, um, Nina, that uh, the Centers for Disease Control has come out with pages and pages and pages of guidance to employers of how to keep workers safe on the job so that you don't see the spread of uh, COVID-19. You know, one of the things that we know about uh, this disease is that people that are asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic um, who are infected and have no symptoms, no temperature, can sort of spread it uh, to one another. And so that's why the crux of the CDC guidance is keeping six feet apart, because you just don't know if, if somebody has it. And also, you know, having everybody um, in a mask. And the problem with the CDC guidance is that it's just guidance. It's voluntary. Employers can follow it or they can ignore it. The federal government has not issued any mandates that employers have to follow to keep workers safe on the job. So CDC has a lot of the guidance. And, you know, we heard, you know, from Millie that um, sometimes the farm workers are six feet apart. 
but then you've also heard, but they don't have access to hand sanitizers because that's another CDC guidance to be able to also wash your hands with soap and water, to have hand sanitizers, to be able to, um, you know, uh, if there's a case of COVID-19 that the sort of workplace will shut down, air out, and then sort of deep clean where they have to. That's all voluntary right now. And let's go now to Michael in Louisville, Kentucky. Hi, Michael. Hello. Um, I provide paratransit here in Louisville, Kentucky, which is a public transportation provided for people with certifiable disabilities in Kentucky with the lack of services that are being provided now. There's, uh, most of the clients now primarily consist of folks going to the grocery stores, um, essential jobs, but I would say the majority of people who are on dialysis or chemotherapy, the most susceptible uh, members of our population to this virus. And, um, you know, I, I trust that they're doing the best that they can, but I imagine everybody now is really having a real hard time trying to find that. Um, yes. My main concern being is that the nature of my job typically requires that I'm very up close and personal with passengers as far as getting them onto the bus, making sure that their wheelchairs, their devices are secured, providing um, seat belts and what have you. And it's just, um, you know, for me, I, my concern is that it's just a ticking time bomb just with, um, you know, as far as being able to provide hand sanitizer, it's been very difficult to come across. Um, at most one or two pairs of gloves a day, and it just doesn't seem adequate. My, like I said, you know, my concern yes. is that I'm young, I'm I'm generally healthy, but um, but yeah, that's been my concern. Well, that's very kind of you, Michael, and you really do bring up a good point that I want to throw to Debbie Berkowitz. What if an employer is not providing you with the support you need, doing the distancing that's recommended because you're in a job where you're engaging so closely with people? Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm glad Michael brought that up because we've heard from all over the country, even down there in Georgia, from poultry workers where they're, you know, working shoulder to shoulder, no masks. Some poultry workers have already died of COVID-19. And, you know, supermarket workers are out there also uh, interacting with the public, and some have gotten protection, often because the union, if they're in a union, has demanded it. Because in this case, the federal government is not enforcing the CDC guidance, unfortunately. However, um, you know, we all want to protect ourselves, and employers have a responsibility to protect workers on the job. And so, Often what we tell people now is, you know, if you're in the private sector, you can call OSHA, though they're not enforcing CDC guidance and they are not actually doing on-site inspections. If you call them and tell them that your employer isn't providing, you know, hand sanitation or masks, they will call the employer and just let them know, and sometimes that works. You can go on the, their website at www.osha.gov and you'll see a link on the right hand, lower right-hand side to file a complaint. You can keep your name confidential. But if you're in a city or a state, you don't have that same protections. And so what I think is important is for you to speak to your coworkers. And um, there are laws that say it's illegal for an employer to retaliate against you if you speak up and voice your concerns. And I think on health and safety, workers need to do that. And there's more protection if they do it together, even just two people. And real quickly, Debbie, do you think most employees know the laws around this? You know, unfortunately, I don't think people realize how weak worker safety laws are or what their rights are to speak up. And I think it's really important, and thanks for doing the show. But like for, um, you know, some occupations are covered by some laws, some by the other, like uh, agriculture is not covered by the National Labor Relations Act, which gives workers the right to act together to speak up. And if you do speak up and get discriminated against, really, I advise you to call your legal aid uh, wherever you are in the country. And, you know, we've heard from activists already standing up for workers. And uh, for, you know, agriculture workers, there is the OSHA law. They do, it does cover them, that says that the employer cannot discriminate against you for raising concerns. They might, they will, as Millie said, and they may even fire you. So let's get you an attorney. You have 30 days to file a complaint, you know, call up legal aid and, and let's fight this. And I really think that um, governors and local officials have really got to enforce with employers 
that when workers raise concerns, it is illegal to retaliate against them All right. in this, especially in this pandemic. I want to bring in one of our essential workers who's been with us this hour, and that is Whitney Buford. And Whitney, you heard what William talked about his em- employer, and you have talked about how you are protected. Um, working for the city of Atlanta, how would you assess being able to have everything that you need to do your job? Well, uh, much like him, we've been given um, sanitizer. We've been given um, things to to wipe down our vehicles. And so I, I actually think they've done a pretty good job of keeping us informed and letting us know what we need to do in order to, you know, protect ourselves. So I, I feel I'm pretty fortunate as well in, you know, giving us the proper PPE. Whitney Buford Morris, who works in the city of Atlanta's Solid Waste Department. And Whitney, we thank you so much for your continued service here in Atlanta. Thank you so much and stay safe. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Well, let's go back to our own essential worker, Millie Trevino, and tell us what you think farm workers need to have the support and the sense that they can speak up. First of all, we we want to make sure that workers are provided wa- uh, water, soap, and sanitizers, and all the at all the workplaces, and with gloves, masks, and other protective supplies. At, at the same time, what we've been doing, and the the women themselves are doing, is trying to make sure that they are making their own masks to protect themselves and their families, and they're also making uh, uh, trying to sew and 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 make masks to. For their co-workers because they know the importance of being protected at the same time what we want to be asking all the time is asking people to to contact congress to contact legislators to advocate for farm workers during COVID. it's very very important we need to as essential workers we need to be protected and for organizations we ask them to really sign sign letters of support for the COVID 19 every worker protection act of 2020 which this this comes back to what was said. OSHA is is the one that has the regulations. I'm sorry, but OSHA is right now is not stepping up in terms of monitoring, enforcing, and making sure that companies are are doing their work. Which is what Debbie Berkowitz made clear, and you yes. are underscoring. Yes. Thank you, Millie Trevino, co-founder of Lideras Campesinas, and thank you to Debbie Berkowitz. She's worker safety and health program director at the National Employment Law Center, and also to Keith Parker, CEO of Goodwill of North Georgia. I'm Nina Kim in San Francisco. And I'm Rose Scott from WABE in Atlanta. Today's show was produced by Susan Britton and Grace Walker. Our lead producer is Andrea Tudhope. Our technical director is Steven Steigman. And our executive producer is John Haas. Special thanks to WABE in Atlanta and KCUR in Kansas City for working together to bring those voices from across the country to your public radio station. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.